<laughs> if you guys have your Bibles with you, open up with me the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. You remember last week when we got together, uh, we saw the, the aftermath of the golden calf. Uh, we saw a little bit about what leadership is all about when, when uh, Moses takes ahead, takes responsibility. It's interesting too because you'll notice uh, last week that God tried to give the people to Moses. Moses gave the people back to the Lord. That's something that we often have to remember anytime in any kind of ministry. We don't want to try to take ownership of the people. The people belong to the Lord. We want to keep them in God's hands. And then later on we see the Lord go to Moses and say, Moses, forget these people. I'm going to start all over with you. And Moses interceded for the people. Now listen, that's really important in understanding what intercessory prayer is all about. It's vital for us to understand, and here's why. You read in the book of Ezekiel that God's judgment came upon the nation of Israel because there was not one to stand in the gap and intercede for the nation. And since no one was interceding for the nation... They enter into judgment. Here we see God, you know, he's, he's angry. The, the children of Israel have broken the law before the law could even get from the tablets on the mountain down to the children of Israel. Yet Moses is going before the Lord and interceding for the people. And as a result of interceding for the people, uh, God's judgment is going to be turned. What God was, was uh, laying out for Moses, uh, because of Moses' intercession, those are turned. So let's look. Chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. Now, listen, it's still going on. You notice what the Lord said. Depart and go up from here, you and the people you brought out of the land of Egypt. So again, the Lord is giving the people back to Moses. Moses, they're your people. They're your people. They're not my, if they were my people, they would obey my law. If they were my people, they would follow those statutes. They're your people, Moses. Verse 2, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. So go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. So the first thing that the Lord lays out for him, as we see this, this continuing of, of what's going on with the, the children of Israel falling into sin and into idol worship, first the Lord says, I'm not going to go with you. Now we're going to continue to build up on that concept but God lays out for him, okay, you're going to go, I'm going to send my angel before you, he's going, to, he's going to still do all the things I promise, but I'm not going to go in your midst. He said, I can't go in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God says, if I'm in your midst, it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out, I'd have to consume you. You're stiff-necked, you're hard-headed, you're not going to obey, you're not going to follow. And truly, that's the way the people were going to be. But I think as the Lord is doing this, as he's laying this out with Moses, he's, it's a, it, to me, it's a test. It's a test for Moses, and it's a test for the people. Look, God is promising them everything without him. 
Every promise that he gave, you can have it. You can have the land. You can have a land flow of milk and honey. You still have the victory, but I'm not going. To see, where's the people's hearts? Do they want to follow the Lord just because of the land? Is it all about the land? Is it all about what God could give them? Or do the people want to know God? Do they want to have a relationship with the Lord? And so he's laying that out for them. He's giving them that, that opportunity. And, and folks, God does the same thing for us today. Are we following the Lord only based on what we get out of it? Is our faith rocked when things happen that, that turn us in a direction we thought, well, God, how can you be in this? God, how can you be directing and, and, and guiding in this way with these things happening? Because if our faith is rocked, and we're looking for more than just God's presence, then we're being deceived. Because everything we need is in Jesus Christ. Everything we need. Every answer to the question, every, every bit of strength that we need to overcome whatever situation we're in is going to be found in His presence. But if we're looking for more, if, there, if we're looking for something else, hey, I, I, I want God and, or I want this more, then I think there are going to come those times of testing in our life. Are you still going to follow me? I know in my life, Kathy and I went through, I've shared with you before, Kathy and I went through some financial struggles early on in our marriage where basically we lost everything. And I remember, you know, it was, it was basically when I was really getting focused on following the Lord. I was about 30 years old. I kind of had run away from the Lord for 13 years, and I was coming back to the Lord. I was focused. I studied the Word. I was going to Bible college. I felt like I felt the call of God. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything starts going wrong. And I remember calling out on the Lord. God, what's going on? I'm, I'm, for the first time in my life, I'm finally doing what I think I was always meant to do. And now this is all falling apart. And I very clearly heard the Lord speak to my heart and say, I want to know, do you love me more than these? Just like what he spoke to Peter at the, at the Sea of Galilee when he had brought in that great catch of fish and he's reinstating Peter and he waves his hand perhaps over the fish and the, and the ships and the fishing industry and, he's, and, and the other disciples and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And I just felt like that's what the Lord was saying in my heart. And here, I think there's a a real solid testing going on, not just for Moses, but for the people. Do you just want the land? Do you just want the blessing? Or do you want the person? Because what God is saying here is, you can have the blessing, but I'm not going. I'm going to stay here. I'll watch over you from here, but I'm not going to be in your midst. I'm not going to be in your presence. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. You see how the people responded. They were given the promise, hey, you're going to get everything, but God's not going. And I think the people responded properly because it was more important to them for all their failures and all the things that they're going to fail and do wrong The people mourned that God wouldn't be with them. They wanted his presence. And that's how we need to be. We need to be a people that desires the Lord's presence more than his presence. You know, what gifts or what good things God can give us. 
I want to know Him. I want to be in His presence. I want to bask in His glory. More than I need to have all the good things of life, I need Him more than all that. And I think we each come to a place where we have to to recognize, hey, I want you, Lord. Even though despite this or that or the other, I want you. And so that's what's going on with the people. They, They mourn. They could have had all the blessing, but they mourned because they were not going to have his presence. Verse 5, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. I could come up in your midst and in one moment consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments that, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So the children of Israel take off all that stuff. They're obedient to the Lord. They desire God's presence. And God's trying to decide. Listen, folks, it's important that we realize that godly sorrow leads to repentance. A sorrow that says, oh, got caught, that's never going to change us. It may do whatever we need to do for the moment to get out of trouble, but it doesn't change our heart. But the Bible tells us godly sorrow produces repentance. It tells us that the goodness of God leads men to repentance. God's mercy and grace is what drives us to change when we truly understand what that's all about. And the children of Israel are getting a first-hand glimpse of what it is. They heard the law, spoke from the mouth of God. They broke the law, spoke from the mouth of God. They knew the righteous requirement of breaking the law was death. The soul that sins shall die. Yet... We're going to see God give them grace. And we're going to see a continued desire for his presence, for for being near him. So verse 7, Moses says, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that when everyone sought the Lord, they went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So Moses takes a tent, whatever tent that they would gather in, like where they would make their battle plans or whatever plans where he would judge over the people. They took that meeting tent. Now, it's not the tabernacle we've been studying. They haven't built that yet. That tabernacle's not built. But the word tabernacle is the same as the word tent. So he takes this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, he takes it outside the camp because what did God say? If I dwell in your midst, I'm going to consume you all. Okay. So they take that outside the camp, and, and Moses says, Listen, anybody who wants to seek the Lord, come here. Come to this tent. Come to this place. And look what happens as they move this out the, outside of the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose. And every man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. So Moses goes outside the camp. Now here is a sad reality and a sad truth. The people all want the presence of God, but as far as they were willing to go was to stand in their tent. They could have followed Moses out to the tabernacle. They could have gone and dwelt in that place. While we all desire, or we all may desire, the presence of the Lord, 
we each are as close to the Lord as we want to be. If we want to be closer to the Lord, all we have to do is to stand up and put what little effort it takes to go and be in His presence. To go to the place where He is. To, to gather together with God's people, the tabernacle of meeting, and to see the Lord face to face, even as Moses did. The Lord talked to Moses. Verse 10, And all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So you understand what I'm saying. They worshipped, and they wanted God's presence, but they were only as close to him as they desired to be. And that was in the door of their tent. So remember when we studied the menorah, each of the six branches of the seven lampstands on the menorah, some are closer to the Lord than others. They're all the same height. Remember Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So in the menorah we have the center vine with a light, Slightly higher than all the other branches. The number of man is six. You have six branches. Two, then two, then two. The furthest ones out are the same height as the middle ones or the same height as the inside ones. But what it indicates for us, while we're all on the same level with the Lord, nobody's exalted above or below, We people are closer or further from the Lord. And what we're seeing here in Exodus is that that's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we decide. When we enter into worship, we can allow all the distractions of worship to pull us out of worship. We can, we can be thinking about, we've all probably done it. I do it too. We can allow the day to pull us out of worship. When we have an opportunity to hear the word, we can, we can struggle with, with focus. Or we can put in the effort to try to change those things, to try to really focus on the Lord. It doesn't just have to be here. I mean, you can have time with the Lord wherever you are, but it's a choice that we make. It's a decision that, we, that we're going to come to, and it's the Shekinah, the Kabod, the glory of God that dwelt over that tent of the tabernacle, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and Moses and the, met there with the Lord, and the Lord talked with him. In verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from a tabernacle. You know who the next leader of the children of Israel is, right? When Moses dies, Joshua takes over. You know the beautiful thing about Joshua? All he, when he said, I want the presence of the Lord, he meant it. He didn't leave. Moses left to go back to his tent. Joshua stayed there. Joshua stayed in that place where the Lord was. And, and as, a, as a result of, of that, and among other things, God's going to use Joshua mightily to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. And, and one of the most famous things that Joshua ever said, you remember? He said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to follow him. That's a, just, this is that Joshua here in this place uh, staying there in the tabernacle, there together uh, with him. And the, the cool thing is the relationship that Moses develops with the Lord. The, this 
this face-to-face, being in this intimate, knowing relationship with one another, Moses experiences this deep type of worship. Verse 12, he goes on, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way. Now as we look at this prayer that Moses prays, you're going to see several things here that, that ought to mark our desire seeking the Lord. First thing, show me your way. There is a way that seems right to man, but that way leads to death. We want God's way. Now, you know that God's way is not always the, what we learn in school. The closest between two points is a straight line, right? Sometimes God takes you on a different course. Sometimes he's got a few other places for us to visit in between on the way from A to B. But Moses' desire was, I want your way. Remember when we talked about the children of Israel first leaving Egypt. It's an 11-day journey from Egypt to the promised land. But don't lose, fa- don't lose sight of the fact that God took one year to get them there. Okay, not talking about the 40 years of wandering. God took one year and he took them to several different places and taught them different lessons all along the way. So that they, when they were ready for the, the victorious life in Christ, the promised land that was before them, They had been prepared by the journey they had taken. So here Moses is saying to the Lord, show me your way. Not my way, not what I think we should do. How many times, how many examples can we think about in the scripture? For example, if you were standing on the battlefield and you saw on the other side of the children of Israel this giant who was calling out to all the other warriors, I doubt that you're going to pick a little shepherd boy You're not going to put any armor on them. You're going to hand them a sling and five stones and send them out. You and I, we look around for our best fighter, the burliest guy we got on our side. We're going to get it, make sure he's got the sharpest sword. We talk about how he ought to do it, but that wasn't God's way, was it? God used a shepherd boy with a sling and a stone to bring down Goliath. If we were with Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, We're not going to sit around when we develop our battle plans and say, Hey, God, you know, this is what we ought to do. Surround the city, begin to lay siege to the city, cut off their supplies. Maybe we'll plan on how we can tunnel under the wall or how we can build a tower to go over the wall. But we're going to come up with plans. It's not going to be march around the city. Just march around the city, be quiet. Do it six days. On the seventh day, do it seven times. And then blow the trumpet and the walls will fall down. Now, you and I, we know that the story happened. In fact, you can go to Jericho and look at the walls if you want to. You can, you can look at the archaeological finds and, and argue with people on whether or not what they have is what they have. But the Word of God tells us what took place. And we know. But if you were standing with Joshua when he got that word, are you able to say, I'm going to do it your way? not mine. I'm willing to go your way. The first part of Moses' prayer, show me now your way. 
And then the next section, the next part we want to consider, that I may know you. First, show me your way. Second, I want to know you. I want to, I want to know who you are. Whatever occurs in our lives, we need to realize, occurs for that sole purpose, that we can draw near to the Lord, that we draw near to Him, that we've cast our cares upon Him, that we put our hopes in Him, that we put our dreams in Him, that we place all those things in Him, because He's the one who's able to deliver. Everything else is going to fall short. So show me your way, second, that I may know you, And then third, that I may find grace in your sight. That I might find grace. Grace. Not getting what you deserve. Or even beyond that, getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. So he lays out. Then he said to him, verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse 14. And he said... that I might find grace in your sight and consider this nation as your people. Again, he gives the people back to him. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is Moses, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. If you're not coming, we're not going. If you're not coming, we don't want to be there. And really, that's the truth for everything we do in life. So often in our lives, and we sit down and we make plans about where we're going to live, where we're going to move, the job we're going to do, the school we're going to go to. How many of those things do we just go through flippantly making all these plans, never one time really considering, God, what do you have? What, what is your desire? Where should I live? Where should I go to school? What should I be doing? What job should I have? Should I leave this one? Should I go to that? Whatever the case. Moses did not want to take one solitary step except that God was going to be with him. That God was going to be in, they were going to enjoy God's presence in what they were doing. So, he goes on in verse 16, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight. And listen to this, I know you by name. I love when we look at the things Jesus did and said, if you do a careful study of when he used people's names and when he didn't. And it's interesting, a lot of people will We'll look at the, the, what is called sometimes the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But Jesus never told a parable using people's names. So a lot of people think the rich man and Lazarus is a true story. Because Jesus knew the name of the one that belonged to him. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice. And I know my sheep. And I call my sheep. And what? They come to me. They'll come to me. And here he's saying to to Moses, I know your name. It speaks of an intimate relationship, not an impersonal God that doesn't know you, but a personal God that knows your name, that knows who you are really at the core. 
and yet still extends grace and still desires a relationship with you. Even as he desired this relationship with Moses, this intimate knowledge. And then look, and then he said, please show me your glory. In essence, Moses is saying, I want more of you. I want more. If we ever come to a place in our Christianity that our desire is not for more of the Lord, for more of Him, for a deeper relationship, for a greater understanding, then we are losing ground. If you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. Every day should be a step toward Him. Every day we should close the gap between we and He so that we're drawing near to Him. And so Moses, all these good things are happening, but still he's not satisfied. I want more. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. The Bible tells that God dwells in inapproachable light. That no one can see God at any time. In fact, let's take a look. He says, please show me your glory. And then the Lord says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and i will proclaim the name of the lord before you i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion i will make my goodness pass before you ask for his glory god said i'm going to give you my goodness why because the goodness of god is his glory goodness is glory god's goodness god's God's love, is gonna, he's going to bring that before Moses. And then he lays out for he's going to proclaim the name of the Lord, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, Yahweh, Yehovah. What, nobody knows because they would only write the consonants. No vowels in the name of God. So no one knows the impronounceable name of God. But that's what he's going to declare. What does that mean? I'm going to declare to you my name. When God says that, he's he's saying to Moses, I'm going to declare to you who I am. What I'm all about. That I am the becoming one, in essence, that I am everything you need. And he's declaring yet again a deeper, more intimate relationship between Moses and Almighty God. That they're going to enjoy... Uh, a, a deeper relationship through it all. And then he lays out, I will be gracious upon whom I will be gracious. Is that God's right? And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In a moment we'll read, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. We are all guilty sinners before God. Does he have to have, be, have mercy on everyone? He don't have to do nothing. He's God. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. When a president issues a pardon, nobody jumps up and pickets and says he needs to let all the prisoners go, do they? No. Just the one that he has pardoned. The same thing that God is laying out for us here. It is God's sovereignty. God is in control. It is never out of control. It's never out of shape. God is always in control. And we should be able to rest in his control. That God is moving, that God is directing. But look at verse 20. But he said, 
You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now listen, folks. I don't know, probably each one of us at one time or another have struggled with the concept of the Trinity and what the Trinity is all about. When we study in the book of Genesis, we come upon a word for God called Elohim. Elohim is plural. The singular name for God is El. The, a, a plural, speaking of du, dual, duality, is Elah. The plural that speaks of greater than two is Elohim. The I am suffix at the end of the word attaches to it a plurality. All throughout Genesis, what does it say? Shall we make man in our image? In Isaiah chapter 6, who will go for us? All throughout the scripture, we see the plurality of God. Where the terms used of God could be singular and one and only one, it's not, it's plural. And then when we look at Genesis chapter 2, we come upon a phrase that should help us hopefully in some way understand. And that is this, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The word in the Hebrew is echad. It means the two shall become unified. They're one flesh, unified together. Two persons, one flesh. We go a little bit further on in the scripture, we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Echad. In understanding the interpretation of the Bible, there is a principle called the principle of first mention. What the principle of first mention teaches us is the first time a word is used in the Bible gives us the clue to the definition or defining that word. The first time echad is used is to define two persons, one flesh. The next time it's used, it's used of Elohim, plural God, as one, compound unity, unity together. And now, so we look at the whole counsel of God's word. And you know what we discover? The Father is called God. The Son is called God. The Spirit is called God. They are all existing at the same time. Not a series of different existences. One existence. One God. Only one God. But distinct in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Part of our understanding of that Trinity and how that Trinity works is when we look at this phrase in Exodus uh, chapter 33, verse 20. You cannot see my face, for no man can see God and live. Folks, we got a problem, because as we study the Scripture, several people see God. Several people see God. But the Bible tells us no one can see God at any time. No man can see God and live. But see, when we look at John if you take a little journey with me, let's go to John 1.18. John chapter 1. Verse 
verse 18. What does it say? No one has seen God at any time. That cannot be any clearer than that. No one has seen God at any time. But what? The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has interpreted God for us. Jesus Christ declares to us who God is. As we continue this journey, go to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy six sixteen. Speaking of the Father, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. It can't be any clearer than that. No one has ever seen the Father. Yet Abraham saw God, Moses saw God, the patriarchs at a variety of different times, saw God. Who did they see? What does John 1.18 tell us? Who did they see? They saw Jesus Christ. They saw the Son. God the Son. And He declares to us who God is and what God has done for us. In 1 John 4.12, if you want to go, we'll, we'll round out uh, our little journey here. 1 John 4.12 says, no one has seen God at any time. How many times does the Bible have to say it before it's true? No one has seen the Father at any time. But yet we know God spoke to Abraham. We know God spoke to Moses. Who is the message through whom the Father speaks? Hebrews 1.1, God who at various times in various places spoke to us through the prophets has in these last days, what? Spoken to us through his Son, Jesus reveals the character of God to us. He is God, a very God. He is God. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, the Father was on the throne. The throne wasn't empty. How does that all work? Well, we have a... a, a, the, really, the best concept I've ever kind of stumbled on is if you consider time. If you consider time. You took away any member of the Trinity, there is not God. Consider time. Time has what? Past, present, future. You take any part of that away, there is no time. There cannot be time without the future. There cannot be time without the past. There cannot be time without the present. But we see they all three exist. They're all three distinct from one another, yet there's one time. Understanding that helps us realize when we read the Old Testament and we see sections of Scripture where God says, no one can see me, yet the Lord reveals himself in one way or another to that patriarch or to that person, the one being revealed is always the same one, it is Jesus Christ. In theology, it's called a Christophany or a theophany. It's the appearance of God before his incarnation. But what does the Bible say? Jesus was crucified when? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is the part of the Trinity that reveals, pictures God to us. He is 
God visible. He is God that we can know. He is the God that we, that we recognize the rest of the Trinity through, visually. And so as we take a look at that, this is what's going to be taking place with Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 33, look what takes place. The Lord said, here is a place by me, and you will stand on the rock. Who's the rock? Who's the rock of Exodus? Hey, you don't have to look very hard. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the rock of Exodus is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock. Do you know what happened to that rock? Moses speak, or first Moses smites the rock, right? And when the rock is smitten, what happens? It cleaves, it opens, and water pours out. If the rock is Jesus Christ, when did that happen to Jesus Christ? When was he smitten? He was smitten on the cross. Smitten on the cross. And when they pierced his side, what happened? Blood and water poured out of his side. So when we take a look at the rock, he's going to say, here, stand on the rock. This is how you can know me. This is how you can see my glory. This is how you can understand me in a greater degree. And then more than that, not just standing on the rock, what? So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you where? In the cleft of the rock. Remember the old hymn? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Where do we hide ourselves? In Christ Jesus. In him we have the forgiveness of sin. In him we experience all that God has for us to experience in this life until we see him in glory. In Christ Jesus. And so... He says, you're going to stand in the cleft. And when I take away my hand, you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Literally, what he's saying is you'll see my afterglow. God's going to pass by. And the afterglow is what Moses is going to see. The afterglow will uh, be revealed to him. Now, he goes on in chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there at the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and he went from Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Yahweh. When he says that, he's declaring who he is to Moses. He's declaring what he's all about. Exactly what's happening with Moses is what Jesus Christ did for you and I when he came in the incarnation. He declares God to us. Who is the Lord? What is he? And John, what does he give us? Seven I am statements, right? The way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am living water. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He's declaring for us what the nature of God is like and how God meets every need that we have. And so we see, 
the Yahweh Bawe doing the very same here with Moses. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and mercy, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. Now, ever since man has first read this verse, he has struggled with it. We have people talking about generational curses. And because my father was this way, then this is why uh, I deal with these things. Now, it's important that we realize this verse is not taking away a person's responsibility for their own actions. The reality of life is my children will watch where I walk and they will follow me. My children will make some of the same mistakes I made because my actions are going to speak louder than my words. But I want you to hold on to something. We're going to go look at at Ezekiel because when we look at the Word of God, we do not take one verse out of one book and build some doctrine on it. But we look at the whole counsel of God's Word. What does the whole counsel of God's Word have to say about this? And if what God's Word has to say is different than how we're interpreting this verse, our interpretation is wrong. Our interpretation is faulty. I I would say to you that when we look at this verse, the important thing to pull out of this verse is, I will visit. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Now, as you consider that for a moment... Hold your finger there. Turn with me to Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Let's see what God's word has to say about this specifically. Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. It lays out for us. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth? are set on edge. Okay, so there was this parable going around, similar to the verse that we just read, that when the fathers blow it, the kids pay the price. Okay, you guys with me so far? This is a Jackie paraphrase of what we just read. When the fathers blow it, the kids will pay the price. As I live, says the Lord God, you will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Each person is responsible for his own sin. As we go through the rest of this chapter, just listen with me. If a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel nor defiled his neighbor's wife or approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence but has given his bread to the hungry, covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury or interest nor taken any increase but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment, Between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my statutes faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, 
says the Lord God. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but is eaten on the mountains, defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considered, uh, but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains or lifted his eyes to idols, or in the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor, and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what was not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say... Why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son will not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself." That's what God's Word teaches. So when we look at this verse, He's not saying the Father's going to sin and that's going to be a big problem. There'll be a generational curse and these other people are going to pay the price for the sins of the Father. It's not what He's saying. I believe what the Scripture is laying out is God saying, I will visit the sin upon the Father. I will visit that sin if it is upon the Son or the Son's Son. That the soul that sins shall die. That if the, what separates us from God is sin. And the soul that sins shall die. And the good news is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as we're, as we're looking at that and as we're considering that, then I want you to turn to Psalm 103. The 103rd Psalm. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed as the eagle's. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. So as the Lord lays out in Psalm 103, as we see in Ezekiel, there comes a time when... Sin is going to be judged. There are 
opportunities given within the law for sin to be covered, right? Sin could be covered by sacrifice. Sin could be covered by an intercessor. An intercessor. Now, when we come to our present place where we are, who is our intercessor? Is there an intercessor for you? Yeah, the Bible says Jesus is at the right hand of the, of the Father and He lives always to make intercession for you. So folks, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. Period. There is no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're in Him, it's all covered. He is our intercessor. Their sin has been, has been dealt with and there is no such thing as a generational curse. What the scripture is laying out for us in the book of Exodus is everyone, father, son, or son's son, is got to pay for their sin. They either must receive a covering from God or they must receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Everyone in the Old Testament that died before the cross died looking forward to the cross, putting their hope in a sacrificial system that they obeyed. And when Jesus died on the cross and paved the way for them, he could lead captivity captive. He could set the captives free because he, being the one sacrifice for all time, paid the price for it all. So when we look at that, it's not something that says the responsibility for my sin is on my dad or my dad's dad or my great uncle Charlie. The responsibility for my sin is on me. I make the choice. I make the choice, and that's what Ezekiel tells us. But Jesus Christ, but God, He will provide the sacrifice. He will provide the covering for that sin. That's what Psalm 103 said. So that covering provided in Jesus Christ. And here we see, as we remember our story, right, from chapter 32, God had the right to wipe out all the children of Israel. But he did not. What do we call that? Grace. Way back in the beginning, God extends grace to the children of Israel. So as as we continue to take a look at what he's got for us here, it goes on in verse 9. Then he said, Moses, if I now have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Still, Moses interceding for the people. Still, Moses saying, all we want is you. If we have you, we have everything. If we have him, we can overcome whatever it is that's set before us. And that still is true. No matter where we find ourselves, all we need is Him. And He said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Folks, that hasn't changed, by the way. One of the greatest things God ever did is done in 1948 when the, when the nation Israel was birthed again. You realize that's never happened in the history of the world. That a people cease to have a nation, 
retain their identity, retain their language, retain their religion from all the corners of the world, and then were brought back together under a nation. Never, ever happened. It was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 38, and it was fulfilled in 1948. God still is fulfilling His promise to the nation Israel. And we know if He keeps His promise to them, He keeps His promise to us. God keeps His word. Verse 11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Folks, God don't want just a piece of you. He don't just want a little part of your heart. He don't just want lip service. He wants it all. Everything. He doesn't want to share you with anything else. And if there is anything else in your life that takes precedence in your life between you and God, then it is in all practices, for all purpose, a a false god. It's an idol. Whatever it is that is taking precedence in our life between us and the Lord is something that needs to be dealt with now what did he tell moses to do with it tear it down tear down the idols tear down the pillars tear down everything that's going to separate you from god and folks you need to realize that's not the same for all of us is it the same for everybody i don't believe that it is i think there are certain issues that are always going to be issues for for joe christian on the right hand that may not be issues for Joe Christian on the left. But there are issues for Joe Christian on the left that God wants him to tear down and get out of his life. So that he can be as close to him as he can be. And there are issues for Joe Christian on the right that God wants to tear down out of his life so that he can be as close to God as he can be. And anytime Joe Christian on the right tries to tell Joe Christian on the left, that he has to do everything like he's doing it, that's not something that's specifically spelled out for us in the Word of God, he's wrong. Who does the work of sanctification in our life? Who makes us clean? Who makes us holy? God does. Can God reveal to us? Yeah. Are we always listening? No. But if we want to be as close to Him, we want to just worship from our doors in our tent, then everything's good. But if we want to be as close to God as we can be, we need to hear what God is laying out for Moses. We need to hear that we need to tear these things down. Verse 15, he says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of this sacrifice, and you take of his daughters and for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. That is what tore the nation of Israel down. God told them before they ever got to the land, no compromise. None. 
You can't serve two masters. You can't give all you have to the Lord if you're already giving all you have to something else. You can't be schizophrenic in your Christianity. You've got to be fully and completely devoted. Devoted to Him. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about devotion. Being devoted. Not talking about being dedicated. I'm talking about devoted. Dedication to me speaks to that concept of I'm doing this because I have to do this. I'm doing this because I'm supposed to do this. Devotion speaks to me as a response of love. I want to do this because I am devoted to God. Because I love Him with my whole heart. This is what I want to give. This is what I want to do. And that process takes a lifetime. The Lord laid out for Moses, listen, if you compromise, if you make peace with the inhabitants of the city, if you make peace with the world, then the world is going to infect you. And they're going to start toying with your mind about this God and that God. And the next thing you know, you're going to be worshiping false gods. Folks, we're reading Exodus. If you come on Sunday night, we're studying Isaiah. You know what happened by the time of Isaiah? The nation of Israel split into two. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom has ten tribes, southern kingdom has two. What was the mark of both kingdoms? Idol worship. They did not follow the Lord their God. They did not stay focused on Him. The northern kingdom goes into bondage to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom goes into bondage to Babylon. Folks, there's a price that is exacted from us when our lives are wrought with compromise. There's a price. We go into bondage. We go into bondage. That's what sin does. Its desire is for us, to destroy us. So we need to realize we can't make compromise with it. It's not about the world. It's got to be about the Lord. And we don't have to look like everybody else, nor do we have to look different from everybody else. We just have to be doing what God's called us to do. And if we're fulfilling that obligation, if we're fulfilling that, then we don't have to worry about compromise getting us off track. But folks, the same thing that happened to the nation of Israel will happen to us. And I promise if we sat down and talked about it, we all can think of someone who was walking with the Lord, who has backslidden, fallen back, gone back into their old ways, what have you. We all know of or personally have experienced those same things in our life. And if you go back to the the lowest common denominator, we will discover that it comes back to compromise. We made a covenant with the world somewhere in our lives. We made a covenant with the world. We made a covenant with the world in, in music, we made a covenant with the world in whatever education, whatever things we were looking for, whatever we were desiring. We made a covenant. We tried to make peace with the world. And we can't make peace with the world, folks, because the world is at war with God. And so if we make peace with the world, we are, as the Scripture declares, at enmity with God. We're at war with Him. Jesus said what? You're going to either be what? With me or against me. There ain't no in-between. There's no in-between. And I think that's what God is laying out for Moses. Now, the children of Israel aren't going to listen. And they're going to struggle with this their whole life. But there were one. There, were, uh, there was a remnant in Israel. 
even when the children of Israel were making uh, covenants with nations that they weren't supposed to make covenant, you still had Joshua saying, choose today, who are you going to serve? But you know what book comes after Joshua? Judges. The lowest time in Israel's history. Because Israel just could not, they were in the promised land, man, they were there. But they could not function. They could not move forward with what God wanted them to do because they were too busy making peace with the world. And so I think it's a warning for us to to hold on to. And he goes on in verse 17. You shall make no molded gods for yourself. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. As I command you in the appointed time in the month of Abib, For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. And every first, every male firstborn among, among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. Now, you see the Lord is repeating stuff that we have already gone over. <clears throat> but the firstborn of a donkey you shall not redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you will break his neck. And all the firstborn of your sons you will redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Isn't that interesting that the Lord put that in there? I mean, the firstborn of a donkey, you have to redeem him with a lamb. If you won't redeem him, break his neck. He's not worth anything. Isn't that a pretty accurate picture of man? And probably if we put our minds to it, you and I could think of a few donkeys in our life. And at one time or another, we've probably been a donkey. And here, what was it about the donkey? The donkey could only be redeemed how? A lamb. Period. A lamb. How are we redeemed? A lamb. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The scripture goes on. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks and of first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of the ingathering at the year's end. Three times in a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Those were the three feasts that they would gather uh, in Jerusalem for. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God Three times in the year. What he's saying is, I'm going to protect the land. You don't got to worry about it. No one's going to take your property. You just come to me and worship three times a year. You just come. Be faithful to me, and I will be faithful to you. You know, anytime I think about that, I think about what the Lord lays out in Malachi concerning uh, tithes and offerings. Because there have been lots of times in, in our lives that... It, it didn't make sense on paper what I felt like God was calling Kathy and I to do. I didn't know how to, to write it all out so it would work, but I could very clearly read the Lord say, test me in this. Give to me first, and all the ends are going to tie up. Give to you first, and you're never going to have enough. And I find that to be a, a real principle in our life. If I give to the Lord first, somehow it all works. It still is the same. You know, it doesn't seem like it's going to do it, but, but it does. Just like the Lord saying here, hey, you come to me three times a year and worship. I'll take care of your land. 
don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You just come to me. For I will cast out the nations before you. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the, for, the, first, of the first fruits of your land you will bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You remember how I was talking to you earlier about how you never take one verse and just build a doctrine on it. You take the whole counsel of God's word. Well, if you go to Israel today, you will not be able to have dairy with meat. Still today, because of this verse. What does this verse say? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That was an actual practice in uh, the area that they were going. They would boil uh, a kid in its mother's milk. That's something that they would do. It was a, was a pagan ritual that they would go through. And the Lord says, don't do that. So, because if you were to drink milk and you were to eat a piece of beef in your stomach, they might boil together. And it's possible that the milk could come from a mama and the, and the meat could... So you can't have dairy products, nor can you even use a fork for dairy that you can also use for meat still today why because they take one verse they run with it of 400 rabbis get together and come up with some ridiculous rule and so today you have what is called kosherness in israel you go to uh, mcdonald's in israel and it's not like mcdonald's anywhere else for example cheeseburgers don't exist that's dairy and beef together. So just a little side note. We don't have time for more of them. So verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all the Lord had spoken on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak with the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. But as we take a look at it, one of the things I think we want to pull away from that is this. Moses became a reflection of God. And our lives should become a reflection of him as well. Maybe not that our faces actually shine, but that our lives shine forth like the life of Jesus. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that we could gather before you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what you bring to us in the book of Exodus. Lord, Father, we ask that, God, that that these words would not just be like the mirror that uh, shows us the issues that are in our life, and then we walk away and forget about it. But, God, that we would desire to be doers of your word, that we would take where your word has convicted us and we would allow that conviction to propel us to action, that we might move forward and do the things, God, that you're calling us to do. Father, we desire you more than anything else. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know your way. We want to experience your grace in greater and greater degrees. We want to be a right reflection of who you are. So, Lord, help us make application to your word tonight that we may affect the people around us with the truth of your word. And we give you all the praise and the glory for the work that you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.